Hello everybody, thank you ever so much for inviting me to do this. Um, a, a real honour to me to be asked to do this. I, when the Sunday Lecture Memorial Lectures began, I, I looked at those stars on the platform and thought, wow, um, terrible, sad occasion, and yet something Sally would have enjoyed seeing unfold over the years, I think, in the ways that all people from different walk, walks of her career are now giving them. So thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm going to begin with Bleak House because that um, was a novel very dear to Sally's heart, something I've had the great good fortune of discussing with her. And for me, um, most processes of thought begin with Dickens. So the lecture begins there and takes a turn through the different projects that Hilary spoke about. Um, so I move on from Dickens to thinking more about military domesticity via an exhibition I've recently curated on um, soldier art. So those will be the, the various components of the talk. Let's start with Trooper George of Dickens' 1853 novel, Bleak House. George is an exemplary gentle soldier. He has an informal army training in care, having nursed his captain on campaign. On his retirement from the army, George comes across Phil, an abused orphan, grown to damaged adult, on the street, and Phil has been blown up by an accident in a gunpowder factory. So he um, is literally uh, a gunpowder burns victim um, through his work with fireworks. In what to Phil, and within the novel's wider exposure of desperate neglect and disconnection, is an extraordinary act of kindness. George takes him in to live and work with him at the shooting gallery. And I have had with Mike Brown's illustration of George and his familiar Phil receiving the, the visit from the small weeds at the gallery. For broken down and blown up Phil, hearing George speak and seeing him wash are a restorative tonic. He recalls George's first words to him. But you say to me, says you, delivering it up your chest as hearty as possible, so that it was like a glass of something hot. What accident have you met with? You've been badly hurt. What's a miss, old boy? Cheer up and tell us about it. Cheer up? I was cheered up already. And Phil is similarly salved by George's vigorous morning ablutions. Um, George gets compared to a kind of military diver just come up. And there's various moments where just to be in proximity to George is felt to have a renovating effect. Phil on his knees, lighting a fire, looks round as if it were enough washing for him to see all that done and sufficient renovation for one day to take in the superfluous health his master throws off. So together, George and Phil extend that circle of renovation. The shooting gallery becomes a hospital for characters across the social spectrum of the novel, from Joe, the dying street urchin, um, to the reduced gentleman, Gridley. And in a conjunction that, when I first came across it, I found fascinating, and which I think was really the starting point for my Military Men of Feeling book, um, Phil's quote is described as nurse and armourer. Phil squared with his smoky gunpowder visage at once acts as nurse and works as armourer at his little table in a corner. And George's care goes on to extend even further across the social spectrum when he nurses Celeste Dedlock Baronet um, in his final illness. 
I was fortunate to have many happy conversations with Sally about Bleak House, which I think was her favourite Dickens novel. It possibly fluctuated sometimes, but that was our shared consensus, Bleak House top. Um, and um, we also spoke quite a lot about George and Phil. Sally's incisive work on the politics of sentiment in Dickens's writing has shaped my reading of that novel, and I know that that work has reshaped the thinking of most of us here and um, way beyond. So, so many times where I read that phrase, the politics of sentiment, in relation to Dickens, and there the footnote is to Sally. More personally, and maybe this is a bit of a stretch, um, Jim's raised his eyebrows at me over this in the past, I continue to connect Sally and Trooper George for their egalitarian model of care, thinking about the unassuming way in which Sally improved the lives of those around her. And I still kind of picture 30 Russell Square, and particularly the Tillotson room where we had our postgraduate um, workshops as a type of shooting gallery. <laughs> The shooting gallery is not an obvious choice as a domestic refuge. It was a space for both pleasure, professionalisation and crime, recreational marksmanship, army training and a source of weapons for the settling of personal vendettas. London galleries at Mortimer Street and Leicester Square offered evening performances including fencing, broadsword, stick play, French cannon and baton, wrestling, glove exercise, and other athletic sports. Also, the exciting attack of the sabre against the bayonets. That's um, the classified um, near the end of 1852. Admission was a shilling, as were 12 practice shots for those honing their armed skills by day. William Green Shooting Gallery at Leicester Square, which I'm pretty sure would have been the one most familiar to Dickens from his walking beats was also in the news in 1852, the year before Dickens began to serialise Bleak House, in connection with the fatal duel near Windsor, as the deadly shots were fired with pistols hired from the gallery. And the same gallery was the training ground for Edward Oxford before his amateurish attempt at assassinating Queen Victoria back in 1840. For most mid-Victorians then, galleries were sensational sites associated with exciting entertainment, to quote the phrase used in their own adverts, and violence that could spill out from their facilities to cause public menace. Dickens's choice to domesticate the shooting gallery is less extraordinary within the context of the wider mid-Victorian investment in the gentle military man. As I've discussed elsewhere, Trooper George takes his place in a long lineup of soldiers celebrated for their caring abilities, variously taking in those in need, adopting battle orphans, the plot of um, a soldier finding an orphan child and adopting them is a, a great staple through um, 1850s and onwards fiction, and nursing, always saving or almost always saving rather than taking life. I wanted to begin with Dickens' shooting gallery as a provocation to think about the interleaving of military and domestic cultures in mid-Victorian Britain. And lately I've been thinking more about the ways in which soldiers themselves, from the Victorian period to the present, are invested in maintaining and developing their domestic identities, even and perhaps especially within war zones. I curated an exhibition that considered soldiers' considerable creative work 
forging connections between their military and home identities, often using art and craft to keep in touch with family and friends and emphasise shared skills and experiences. And this has just closed, sadly, strange to think of it all coming off the walls again, at um, the Warwickshire Gallery Compton Verney. Um, we had a, a run from March until last week. And um, the painting that I had on my titles was a real focus of the exhibition. You, you went into the front um, door and immediately saw John Luard's painting, A Welcome Arrival. So um, I'd like to just think through why this was such an important painting for me, both in the Military Men of Feeling book and for putting together the exhibition, uh, in the hope that it also leads me on to some maybe more speculative thinking about the relationship between um, the domestic soldiering um, and feeling as we move into the next part of the paper. So this painting, A Welcome Arrival, exhibited in 1856, the year after the Crimean War ended, um, it explicitly records the significance of gifts sent from home to war and also more subtly points to cycles of material exchange between front and home. Take a closer look. Um, the three officers pictured are unpacking boxes. The welcome arrival is the goodie box, um, or as today's troops might call it, morale box, from home. Um, and it's a very sensory depiction, I found, of that pleasure. Um, so I think for me always the, the favourite um, goodie scent is that woolen stripy mitten um, held in the hand and of course there are um, good things to eat and smoke. Um, I think the officer on our far left is looking at a miniature possibly of a loved one from home. So um, Luard has been quite particular in showing the ways that the contents of this box ranged across the senses in the pleasures they evoke for those opening it. These homely everyday items bring welcome comfort to the hut, which is already um, a fairly idealised, highly domesticated site with the cat there on the hearth and the warmth. Um, of the, the glowing fire. This was a reassuring image of a war more famous for its management, including inadequate supply lines that left soldiers facing a freezing winter with insufficient shelter, clothing, and food. And um, the scenes on the walls from the Illustrated Press, uh, particularly from the Illustrated London News, are doing a dual function there, um, both adding insulation and decoration. And I'll, I'll come back to their more decorative um, content in a little. Luard, the painter, understood the emotional and practical significance of receiving a box from home, an event which is discussed in many officers' letters. And, um, Non-officer rank soldiers also do talk about the importance of objects sent from home, often not on this scale, but um, I've, I've seen a couple of regular officers' letters talking about um, small objects being sent, including some medication. 
Lou Ward had left the army in 1854 to pursue an artistic career, and a welcome arrival was inspired by a four-month visit he made to his brother Richard, an officer in the Crimea in the 77th Regiment. The painting gestures to the um, thick lines of communication between home and campaign. As historian Michael Roper has argued, boxes from home contributed importantly to what he calls soldiers' emotional survival. In his work on the First World War, Roper points out that the foodstuffs, reading material and other personal objects sent to those at the front provided a powerful conduit to home. His examples include an army cook who used his mother's recipes and prepared the men's food with the wooden spoon she had sent him, and of a mother who sent her son wallpaper samples from the redecoration of their home. As Robert puts it, this was the stuff of home itself and it offered the most direct contact short of going on leave. Soldiers' pleasure at receiving ordinary domestic objects creates a line of continuity across conflicts and time. I've been fascinated by British war photographer Tim Hetherington's photographs of his time embedded with battle company in the US Army's 173rd Airborne Division in Afghanistan and he um, takes a lot of photographs of them receiving packages. He quotes um, one member of that company, specialist Kyle Steiner, explaining, getting things from anybody, your loved ones, your wife, your kids, your parents, that feeling was great. He appreciates his mum's sending of novelty toys. Another mother sends birthday brownies and silly hats. Everyone had a great time with that stuff. It was the thought. It was awesome. A great feeling mail. It's the equivalent of being a four-year-old and running down the stairs for Christmas. Steiner's comments capture the way parcels evoke domestic structures, a feeling of being like a child, even within the fabric of the family home, running down the stairs at a season firmly associated in his home country with family time and feeling. Arthur Gibbs, a young subaltern in the First World War, expressed a similar sentiment on receiving a box. I love undoing them, and it's just as much fun as opening a Christmas stocking. So, as well as this um, material from home, something I really wanted to do with the exhibition was think about the emotional significance of soldier making and objects specifically produced to be sent back home. A case we called Keeping in Touch. Um, again, we ranged quite widely chronologically um, some sweetheart pincushions from the First World War um, and some scrapbooked material from the Crimea. And I'll just focus for a moment on these gifts produced in the Second World War. Oh, I can't resist say something about the scrap of Russian medal ribbon in the album in the top hand corner. This was sent by um, a very young, very small officer called the boy captain in the Crimea to his sister as a birthday gift and preserved by her in a memorial album which she put together after his death. Um, too many of you here will have already heard me speak at great length about this piece of small piece of ribbon and the boy captain, so I will not do that here. Instead, I'll, I'll say just a little more about this box of bricks um, painted with the owner's baby name, Twidge, 
um, Twidgel Mooring's father was um, a, an officer in the Second World War responsible for training. And the family story was that he would grant leave passes in exchange for a toy made for his child. And, and the little wooden iron is also one of that group. There was also um, a stuffed toy dog made from a used army blanket. Um, but the box of bricks really grabbed me because it showed the way that there must have been a conversation about um, the daughter's baby name and perhaps the kind of thing she might have wanted to play with. Oh, you promised me this would happen. And we just say, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, quite a lot of the first room of the exhibition reflected on the feeling behind these um, either personal productions of gifts to be sent home or the kind of commissioning of a gift made by somebody else in the regiment to be sent back. Other connections with home also offer comfort. A letter in which Queen Victoria described her personal feeling for her troops, and um, she said no one takes a warm interest or feels more for their sufferings or admires their courage or heroism more than their queen, was painted onto the walls of hospital wards across the Crimea. And many Victorian soldiers comment in their letters and diaries on the comfort they derived from the Queen's care for the army. Words and images on the walls shape the war environment in surprising ways. They also give a material record of exchanges between theatre and home, as Luard's painting shows. The pages collaged on the hut walls, as um, we looked at before, are largely taken from the Illustrated London News. And that publication actively sought reports from soldiers in the Crimea, reports and sketches, which were then proudly collected by their family members and posted back to them in the Crimea saying, well done, you made it into the Illustrated last month. I hope you enjoy this. Um, you can put it on your mess wall, which the, the, which the soldier artist would then do. Um, Papers provide welcome news and reading material, and they generate a shared culture between front and home, with civilians and soldiers reading and discussing the same material. As well as regularly contributing copy, verbal and visual, to the press, Victorian soldiers creatively engaged with publications through practices of interior decoration, embellishment, and collage. Thomas Harvey, a 17-year-old officer in the Crimean War, whose sketches were published in the Illustrated London News to the great pride of his family, wrote home about the kind of hut decoration captured by Leward. I first saw this picture of pens and pencils in our mess hut. We take the Illustrated News and all the papers, and Captain Butts is very fond of posting them all around the room, so that now the hut is covered with pictures from Illustrated and Punch, and in all the exciting scenes, he will make them ridiculous. Somehow, you must laugh when you see them. Explosion in the trenches. Well above the smoke of the trenches, he will stick some fat man, as if he'd been blown up. Another scene, he's cut the figure of a man in punch who's running after his hat in a frantic manner. He sticks this figure in a scene of sentries on guard in the trenches and a smoking shell after him. In that manner, pictures that you've seen a thousand times are still interesting. 
So the Illustrated London News, incorporating content produced by soldiers, containing news of war read by families and then sent to the Crimea, re-read and creatively reused by soldiers as discussed in their letters back home and in other representations of military life, such as Luard's A Welcome Arrival, is an example of the thick connections and layers of communication between home and front. Luard's careful representations of pages of the newspaper repurposed as wallpaper is indicative of the thoroughness of the overlaying of domestic material culture onto life in military camp. The painting also responded to the home front demand for insights into the everyday lives of soldiers. And I think that these processes of interior decoration connect otherwise very distinctive conflicts across time. As a prisoner of war in Turkey during the First World War, Elias Henry James describes the chief problem as how to pass the time. We had seen painters whose art took us back to England. We could sit all day looking at the village green scene. Elias Henry James's memoirs of his time in captivity turn out to be very old indeed. Um, they had a seance racket going where he um, managed to take in apparently all of his fellow prisoners and the camp commanders now, haven't reached the end yet but i think his success at channeling this supposed spirit who calls for his release is actually going to result in that release it's a, <laughs> a really fascinating uh, range of activities but when he's not doing that he spends time as do the others sitting um, in front of this painted village green scene a similar sense of English heritage informs Adam Williams' glass wall painting, um, which is still there in Camp Taji, Iraq, um, which was produced in Operation Shader 3 in 2016. And this was another focal point of the exhibition. between the 90th anniversary of the end of World War I with the Army's continuing service in theatres including Iraq and Afghanistan. The comfort given... Sorry, I'll, I'll speak much louder, sorry. The comfort given by this Queen's support for her army echoes that derived from Queen Victoria's words writ large on the walls of Crimean hospitals. Sapper Williams's work follows the format of an existing mural, um, Artist Unknown, which is um, just visible off to the left, 
um, with Winston Churchill imaging quotation. And Williams um, spoke about how he wanted to extend that sense of um, reinforcing the Britishness of their domestic area as a reminder to other nations who walked past. And there was quite heavy footfall, he says, due to it being on the way to the cookhouse that we were there and proud doing our part in the coalition. With the coalition partners, they're all having connections to Her Majesty. I chose the Queen as she is our cause Colonel-in-Chief and it corresponded with Her Majesty's 90th birthday and the Royal Engineers' 300th birthday. Other members of the task force responded positively to it. I have many compliments on my work from them and other nations. I watched many people pose for photographs next to it. The quote was also one I found to be motivating and applicable to whatever the individual chose. Despite the mural's patriotic British contact, photographer Corporal Nick Johns, um, who, yes, he gets credited here as well uh, as collaborative piece between them in his decision to record what might otherwise be quite an ephemeral piece of soldier art, and doing this exhibition has made me quite concerned about the ways in which um, the everyday art in war zones is very quickly lost and not always recorded. And so Johns says of taking this photo that he wanted to capture the scale of this artistic piece and found it to be an icebreaker between us and the other nations as they would stop and talk to us about it, which helps build relationships between individuals. I have a little clip of us appearing on ITV News at 10 on the day of the exhibition opening, mainly to show you um, Adam talking about his work. Um, slightly embarrassingly, I'll be in it as well, but let's have that if we can as a bit more background on the exhibition of what it's trying to do. Finally, another timeline of ways used by troops to try to survive the traumas of war is, of course, making things. Models, paintings, statues, carefully crafted out, of, crafted out of whatever materials came to hand. Anything, indeed, to help forget the awful awareness that violent death is constantly around the corner. A new exhibition in a small Warwickshire village puts many of these poignant artefacts on display. From the intricate sweetheart cushions stitched by soldiers in World War One and repurposed brass shell cases to the roughly carved signposts from bases in Afghanistan made as a reminder of home. Creativity has long been an unexpected product of conflict. We're showing um, an incredible oil paintings in the Crimean period, a welcome arrival of officers unpacking goodie boxes from home, so like morale boxes sent out today to the troops. But what really struck me was the importance of making and sending objects home to continue relationships with those not at war. Many of the items on display at Compton Verney Art Gallery are a testament to ingenuity including this mural painted on a glass wall in Iraq. I had to use um, things like a pencil, bits of a broom, uh, bristles I'd cut off, and take them to the pencils, make a paintbrush, and I had to acquire them uh, paint from local Iraqis. Uh, at the time, it was just a way for me to use up the spare time I had and to sort of break from that environment. But as well as the items handcrafted on operations, there are two ceramic sculptures inspired by objects soldiers from Sunderland brought back from Afghanistan. One of the soldiers brought in a, a paintbrush which he'd used to 
excavate IEDs, roadside bombs in Afghanistan. So I made a kind of replica or a reimagined version of the brush. Um, and I, I see it as kind of um, a way of telling this, this story which wouldn't otherwise be told. There is art made by prisoners of war to record their identity and give mental escape, and as therapy and retraining for those injured. But now these artifacts are painting a picture of the hidden art of war. Martha Fairley, News at 10, Warwickshire. <laughs> So um, Adam is a, a wonderful, charismatic speaker, um, and just to go back to what he says there, we did a number of public events together where he expanded on that sense of lifting himself out of the present moment by doing this piece of work and connecting to those left at home by painting the young queen. Um, and also a more practical sense of just using dead time. Um, I've also thought his comments about the way that he needed to source materials and improvise were really interesting and could I could maybe do a lot more with this if I thought harder about um, processes of bricolage. I was just reading today about Robinson Crusoe and the art of the make-do um, and how that would be another quite interesting um, framework for thinking about these pieces of art. Um, it's interesting as well that this is a piece of work that has evolved since and Adam spoke about um, his mixed feelings about the way that the, the black space he had artistically preserved in order to mirror the Churchill mural has been used in fact as a memorial for um, somebody who's been killed in the the following regiment who went after his came home and the way that um, he was trying to be polite about this because um, memorial um, art is another very familiar way that um, camps are continuing to be decorated. So we've got an example of that in the National Arboretum where the memorial wall from Camp Bastion in Afghanistan has been recreated. Um, and I, but I think he had a certain ambivalence to the way his own artistic vision had been um, changed by that addition. And perhaps the emotional tone of that war changed um, quite significantly by it as well. In the clip, we saw another popular form of accretive art evolved by many hands, which we featured in the exhibition, um, another contemporary example. Um, this is Anna Redwood sculpture drawing together homing signs and most of the soldiers I spoke to who visited the exhibition spoke about how, how familiar seeing these kinds of um, makeshift wooden signs was to them that they had either made one or had one in their own camp um, that was a real point of conversation um, for those visiting. So Redwood's The Weight of Duty brings together signs made by soldiers serving in Afghanistan on Operation Herrick between 2001 and 2014. Um, and many of these wooden signs explicitly point home, Fort William, God's Country, 6,015 kilometres, London, 7,001 kilometres, with simple sketches of familiar landmarks, the London Eye and the Thames, 
while others reference locations made familiar by war. Kabul, 600 kilometres, and camps including Bastion, named for the material Hesco Bastion, the flexible wire mesh from which it was built. On Redwood's signpost, Kabul is lodged between the small Welsh village of Trinat and St Vincent and the Grenadines, um, reflecting both the range of locations called home by those serving in the British Army and the extension of the familiar through war. It interests me that Kabul has also become a familiar site around which serving soldiers there can orient. Redwood's assembled signs demonstrate the way soldiers link themselves to places and symbols of normality, the sign being an indicator of known and navigable position in extreme circumstances and conditions. Like much soldier art, the signs combine humour and irreverence with more serious feelings of longing, homesickness and nostalgia. It is both orienting and disorienting, merging the extraordinary and the mundane, the in and out of place. In this final part of the paper, I'm going to take a bit of a leap, there is a bit of a gear change here, um, to a final case study of what I find an extraordinary example of the in and out of place um, under the, the, the generalship of Baden-Powell at the siege of Mafeking. Um, right at the end of the 19th century, uh, in the Second World War, this siege seized the British imagination um, and Baden Powell, probably best known to us as author of Scouting for Boys, founder of the Scout Movement, and for his military career, was um, an accomplished artist. He did all the sketches um, himself for Scouting for Boys and um, produced work while besieged at Mafeking that he went on to exhibit in London on his return. Prior to that, he'd um, experimented in bronze sculpture. He had done a sculpture of um, Captain John Smith who, of Pocahontas dubious fame. Um, Baden Powell failing to um, model the ears to his satisfaction used his own ears as the model um, by looking in his shaving mirror. That was displayed in an officer's exhibition. So Baden Powell as, as a quite a sophisticated artist himself, um, also an actor, um, and using these skills to put on the most elaborate sequence of Sunday entertainments for um, the British Army besieged at Mafeking. So to make some form of a link, homing signs and patriotic murals lay down a material tactile marker of national identity as a central point of orientation. And in a comparable way, Baden-Powell's morale strategy for the besieged force centred on the recreation of Britishness. The enjoyment of British pursuits and rhythms was central to the way in which the wider press and Baden-Powell himself presented siege life in the South African town of Mafeking. In his collection of art and recollections called Sketches of Mafeking, Baden-Powell presents the siege as an investment of rather a domestic kind. He discusses the military aspects of the siege only in passing, um, mainly to talk about war failures in chivalry and humanity. Um, he notes that there's been shelling of the hospital and firing on the women's section, killing women and children. 
drawing on an established rhetoric of the enemy as killers of civilians and of the British Empire as a civilising and humanitarian mission. Wayne Powell's main emphasis, though, is on the domestic life of the siege. He ran a varied programme of activities on Sundays, which were agreed truce days, including sports, especially cricket, baby shows, art competitions and exhibitions, and theatrical entertainments, in which he often took the leading role. And brilliantly, one of his favourites was um, Sidney Carton's speech from A Tale of Two Cities, um, a, a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done, which was um, a recurrent term for him in these entertainments. As one of BP's, sorry, Ben Powell's serial officers, senior officers, Major Bailey put it in his account for the graphic newspaper. In the intervals of more pressing and serious phases of the siege, he had scope for his extreme versatility by providing little surprise packets for the boars and amusement for us on Sundays. He was always causing something to be organised, to give a fillip to the feelings of the garrison, either sports, an artillery duel, a concert, a troop of lancers to amuse the old cavalry soldiers and mystify the boars, fire balloons, and every species of idea which happened to strike him. He so thoroughly appreciated the necessity for keeping people's minds occupied as far as possible. As far as I could see, the inhabitants of Mafeking were an inordinately cheerful lot. But in case they were not, he made every provision to make them so. Um, here's one example. Oh, sorry, more homing signs. Um, I talked about those already. And um, sorry, this is my most grainy picture um, of some of the kinds of contrivances, um, the military dodges that Baden Powell made to get around the shortage of resources. So here he has an instructed um, for model soldiers to be made on sticks that could be run around the top of the fort in order to look as though the force is larger. And um, here people are throwing small bombs on fishing lines. And Baden Powell speaks at length about his delight in discovering that you could blend the pursuit of fishing with the pursuit of war. <laughs> As well as creating a familiar British entertainment culture, Baden Powell infused his practical adaptations with the stuff of Englishness. And he talks about Sergeant Page, who had done sea fishing from the rocks at East Grinstead, to whom it occurred to cast bombs from the end of a fishing rod, which he did with great effect and a range of nearly 100 yards. And they also had a go at making a printing press for a mafficking currency um, it didn't succeed, but they made one woodcut from um, a croquet mallet, which had been cut in half. <laughs> so I think the homely materiality of these makeshifts was important in Baden Powell's reporting of um, these kind of dodges, as he called them, to show that British stuff was supremely adaptable. And there's more I could say here about the imperial ideology of the British as at home everywhere across the world, overwriting concerns about some, some areas, particularly um, <coughs> other parts of Africa, as unsurvivable by British forces. 
Overall, the message that British resources of men and materials, those scamps, would go a very long way at Maffa King, was a comforting and widely celebrated one, which also supported the larger imperial narrative of the British naturally at home across the world in ways that could only benefit local populations. This elaborate morale-boosting programme that Bain and Power put on, though, was <coughs> entirely enabled by agreement with the Boers of Sunday Truce Day. And Bain and Powell attributes the eventual successful result of the siege as entirely due to the good spirits of the men and officers, which was maintained without, throughout. So the mutual forbearance could have been seen to have cost the Boers <coughs> the campaign. The Sunday Truce was never broken, by the enemy, though Baden-Powell and his team feared it might be during a Sunday baby show when it became clear that the Boers were moving their large gun. In fact, they were showing it to Sunday visitors and <laughs> Baden-Powell held his nerve and the baby show continued. Um, the British, however, did accidentally break the truce one Sunday. Um, an outlying British fort fired its maxim and um, this is the account that Baden-Powell gives of that. The Boers at once sought cover and prepared to retort to what they considered an act of treachery. Lieutenant Greenfield, commanding the fort, considered that he was to blame and walked straight out to the Boers without a white flag to apologise. Fortunately, they were sporting enough not to open fire upon him <laughs> and accepted his explanation over a mutual exchange of cigarettes and newspapers. So Baden-Powell's language of treachery, the immediate reaction of the fort commander to put things right at the risk of his own life, shows the value, and especially the emotional value, that both sides placed on the Sunday ceasefire. The resulting exchange of conversations, cigarettes and newspapers in place of hostilities <coughs> resonates with many accounts I've read from the Crimean War to the First World War where forms of truce result in an emotional and often a material exchange with the enemy. <coughs> the general consistency of Sunday forbearance at Maffa King as a cultural agreement, shared and equally observed by both sides, cuts across Baden-Powell's emphasis on war inhumanity, as do the wider accounts of friendliness during truce times. Recognition of the humanity of the enemy is a staple of accounts of agreed ceasefire in the Crimean War, the Boer War and the First World War, which are the three moments of conflict I've been thinking about so far. Um, the graphic talking about the Boer War says, the most striking point in this temporary cessation of hostilities was the perfect harmony which characterised the intercourse between Britain and Boer. Courtesy seemed to become friendliness, so cordial were the relations between the men. It was difficult to believe that they had been lately fighting desperately against each other, and it was sad, maybe understatement, to think that they would each again be engaged in deadly strife. And similarly, when a truce was observed on Sunday, our men would hold friendly conversation with their enemy, and both sides, when the truce was over, would go back to the trenches, as ready as ever to keep on fighting. Um, and that's a kind of coherence, incoherence, debate that you get so often in soldiers' accounts of war, that the humanity of the enemy has no longer, no sooner been recognised than you're back to the business um, of killing them. Tolstoy makes this same point um, in War and Peace, 
when the French soldiers take up a wave of laughter from the Russian lines, so spontaneously that you would have thought the only thing to do was to unload the guns, blow up the ammunition and get back home as soon as possible. But the muskets remained loaded, the marksmen slits in buildings and earthworks stared out as ominously as ever, and the big guns stood ready, ranged against each other. We love to celebrate the famous 1914 Christmas truces, and there was that great chocolate advert in 2014 doing just that. Um, plus David Cameron's celebratory truce games of football at the opening of the centenary commemorations of the First World War. Um, David Beckham was involved in a um, First World War commemoration football academy. Various um, versions of us wanting to celebrate that moment. But at the same time, it has to be seen as an extraordinary moment in order for war to retain any logic. Seen as a recognition of emotional community with the enemy and shared culture, the continuation of violence becomes both irrational and inhumane. In what I found a really important book this year in my thinking, although it was written um, many years back in 1980, Tony Ashworth um, argues in his book Live and Let Live that the 1914 Christmas truces were the tip of an iceberg a moment of exposure of much wider processes of reciprocal exchange among antagonists, where each diminished the other's risk of death, discomfort and injury by a deliberate restriction of aggressive activity, but only on the condition that the other requited the restraint. So he gives numbers of examples of um, respecting the rhythms, so particularly the domestic rhythms of the opposite side, um, not firing at meal times, avoiding toilets which were indicated with a flag. Um, as one officer put it, it's only common courtesy not to interrupt each other's meals with intermittent missiles of hate. So there is often, um, on quiet fronts, a routinisation of time, place and number of shells, as well as deliberate firing wide and high. And even, and this is again Ashworth's research, musical machine guns which could wrap out the rhythms of popular tunes. He talks about that as being commonplace on quiet fronts and gives the example of one machine gunner's skill in rendering policemen's holiday. And a dozen machine guns on both sides would answer with the shots bang bang. On a front in Salonika, one soldier commented, the Bulgars not only favoured a policy of live and let live, but had the qualities of sportsmen. A game of football, for instance, could be played in full view of the enemy without fear of molestation unless it was watched by a very big crowd. Nor was hunting ever interfered with. Hanging out washing was also tolerated. <coughs> Drill parades were not. Many of the British soldiers' lessons I've read from the Crimea also comment on the Russian forbearance of hunting and material exchanges of things like letters, tobacco, newspapers. And Baden-Powell's Sunday truces are a form of a routinization of violence that also permitted a range of cherished activities. i come to the conclusion now. Thank you for your patience. Ball commander Elof even wrote to Baden-Powell. Excuse me. He was seeking permission for his men to join Sunday cricket concerts and balls. 
Baden Powell, in typical style, replied, excuse me, I'm not going to be able to impersonate Baden Powell. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Sir, I beg to thank you for your letter of yesterday in which you proposed that your men come and play cricket with us. I should like nothing better after the match in which we are at present engaged is over. But just now we are having our innings and have so far scored 200 days not out against the bowling of, and then he lists the um, ball commanders, and we are having a very enjoyable game. Though it is difficult to determine the seriousness of Elof's request, he presents the British social life at Mather King as appealing, and Baden Powell's comic reply riffs upon a shared understanding of the rules and language of cricket. Though the balls are not invited to cross the line between adversary and ally and become players in the same game, that line is blurred by their good-humoured observation and tolerance of British enjoyments. Forbearance of the enemy was clearly required for these large-scale pursuits on the front lines. Football, hunting, cricket enjoyed both in the Crimean War and in World War I, as well as during truce times at Mafia King. I see participation in familiar, locally and nationally resonant recreations and it, as an extension of the domestic culture of interior de- decoration, <coughs> including the transformation of favourite British newspapers into hot wallpaper in the Crimea, scene paintings of the village green in the First World War prisoner of war camps, and the painting of Queen Elizabeth II onto British camp walls in Iraq in the present. The broader domestic cultures enabled by Live and Let Live are simultaneously a connection to home and to the enemy. The pleasures of hunting, cricket, croquet and football both connect the British soldier back to a way of life at home, perhaps a home felt to be worth fighting for, and at the same time outwards to an enemy who recognises, respects and enables these activities. As my research continues, I'd like to think more about the emotional experience of shared environments and circumstances with the enemy. I'd especially like to think about the feelings involved in moments of material and cultural exchange between those on opposing sides, like the swapping of tobacco and papers and truces, letters between opposing commanders about cricket matches in the Boer War, and the sharing of machine gun rhythms in World War I. I'll just finish with Montague, a First World War soldier's reflection on his service in that war, which records the painful discovery of shared material and domestic cultures. The hatred business started crumbling in proximity to the enemy and dissolved altogether on discovering only the usual stuffing, photographs and tobacco and bits of string and the wife's letters in his pocket.